And then I was like, maybe I could just pursue a freelance practice and that would be like actually doable. And I sort of looked at the bank account and looked at the like sheer disorganization of it all basically. And I was like, I'm gonna whip you guys into shape. <laughs> So having the instability has also fed the growth of the company, if that makes sense. It's a really interesting cycle, actually. Ask for help. <laughs> because there is so much goodwill in the city, I think. Jess Sweet. There was a time in Jess's journey where she quit her relationship, left her job, left her accommodation. This chapter is all about what do you do when you have nothing? Where do you start? How do you build something? And when you have something, how do you grow it? How do you ensure that it has the policies and the values inbuilt within it? How do you get the right people? And further on down the line, how do you use things like a board to gain structure without, without the company becoming this immovable object? All of this is answered in this chapter. This is the director's diary. It's no one's intention ever to share a diary. So if you're listening to this, keep it close and use it well. So Jess, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Tradition we have with uh, special guests is to tell us your life story in two minutes. So I believe you've got a timer on your end. So um, for those who don't know who you are, could you tell me your life story in two minutes? Yes. Um, hi, I'm Jess. <laughs> um, uh, Jess Sweet's my name, Jessica Sweet. And we, I um, was born in uh, West London, outer West London, in a place called Brentford, mostly uh, in an estate that's mostly famous for um, a show called People Just Do Nothing, Corrupt FM. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's the estate I, I grew up on. Um, and uh, when I... Uh, sort of went through my schooling and sort of realised that I was into kind of, uh, I came from like a bit of a drama background, but then did an uh, A level or AS level, it was as it was called then, and realised that actually the stuff that I was learning, all the scripture stuff was a bit boring to me. So when I was applying for university, I was applying for these kind of performance degrees and uh, ended up going to one at Leeds Met, even though I got into one at Leeds Uni, but the one at Leeds Met seemed like it was the closest thing to performance art or what I knew of performance art anyway, um, which was uh, transformative. It changed my life. And um, I got loads of really great opportunities because all the um, lecturers there were practitioners and really interesting people like Alex Kelly from Third Angel um, and... Uh, who's still making work you know now and some really interesting lecturers that came from like a, a, a fine art practice for example um and when I was uh, in my last year I decided to uh open a gallery in my basement with my pal <laughs> um and I was interested in kind of curating and then uh, because of doing stuff like that just sort of off my own back other people who were doing stuff in the city kind of picked up a bit of interest in me and tried to bring me onto projects I did some uh, kind of producing um, uh, schemes like through Compass and some other stuff and I uh, uh, sort of worked in pubs to sustain myself and and in organic shops and you know like retail industry and then I decided to quit everything oh my god it's two minutes already shit <laughs> <laughs> it goes so quickly it's really impossible <laughs> it's so hard 
<laughs> I'll give you a bonus like 30 seconds to like finish the story. Okay, all right, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, so I quit everything in my life. I left my uh, job, I left my boyfriend, I went on the dole and I decided to try and sustain myself with uh, an arts practice that was like a bit uh, amorphous <laughs> and so I was like uh, gonna try and set up like a kids party planning business and but at the same time my pals who were doing this thing called Live Art Bistro uh, I, I were up for me volunteering and like helping out and when I kind of came into the company realized that oh they need a lot of help and so more and more that just became my life um, and now and out of that came Clay which is oh. where I am today. <laughs> Amazing. So let's go right back to the beginning. So you you kind of touched upon kind of finding your love for performance, but like, was there one thing that you can remember that really sparked that off? Actually, yeah. Interestingly, it wasn't actually anything to do with the university, but I think maybe it's all an amalgamation really of like me sort of understanding it um I went to my I went back to London to to visit my pal my best pal used to work on the bar at this um like place in East London called Shunt um which I at the time didn't realize how seminal it was there she was just like oh I work at this bar it's kind of weird and cool <laughs> I was like okay great I'll come for a week and I saw Scotty perform uh cabaret um and I just what it was very it, with the knowledge that I have now looking back on it it was it was basically an ode to Lee Bowery um but I I saw him give birth to a Diet Coke bottle to um uh to the song uh that was featured in the advert you know I don't want you to be no slave and uh it just there was just a click moment where I was like, this is fucking great. Like everyone should be watching this. And like, I love this. Um, and this is what I know that I want my life to be about. So that was pretty, probably one of the most formative uh, points actually. That's great. That's uh, yeah. I can see how I can connect the dots forward now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think there's something about the queerness of it as well that I really latched onto, even if I hadn't really fully like, come into my queer self yet um that I like didn't couldn't name it mm. but that's what was interesting to me but you knew it instinctually yeah yeah um, that's really interesting yeah so that was like really big for me um and then I guess like sort of having that experience and then seeing what the guys at lab were doing I was just like, I want to be a part of that because, like, I can see how I can connect myself and that feeling that I had when I was watching that performance to trying to give that feeling to everyone else as well. Yeah. And at the time in Leeds, was there was there much of a, a scene, live art scene? No, I mean, not... Yes, there was a history of it, but unfortunately, because it was sort of just at the point of, like, mad austerity... Um, sort of one of the most interesting theatres was closing it used to be called um uh Leeds Met Studio and Gallery Theatre and it was run by Annie Lloyd and so that was sort of that had sort of closed and she was still doing a bit of programming um but she was starting this new thing so things were a bit dark at the time like in terms of performance but there was a hist there was really interesting uh work being made by graduates and 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 um postgraduates who were like in the city still 
a lot of collaboration between like fine art and performance uh, people, which is, you know, a really interesting breeding ground for like some weird shit, right? Mm. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that was happening. And and there was opportunities to show stuff in galleries sometimes, but not mad, not, not something that was purely focused on uh, performance, not in an experimental way anyway. Obviously, you still had your big theatres and your opera houses and whatever. And there were some sort of companies doing some interesting stuff like Slung Low, but that was on like, that was kind of a slightly different scale it still was quite theatrical and um yeah so in terms of the performance that we were interested basically we wanted to show the performance that we were making and there was nowhere to do it so we were like well let's build it (laughs) yeah Um, it is awesome um i want to get back to that moment where you said you just quit everything quit boyfriend quit job quit there was a so there's there's obviously a moment or there's a thinking process there like what at the time, what was going on? What was the, what was the catalyst for doing that? Yeah, so I was, I was in a bit of a bad relationship, really, and so I think that was really the catalyst. But in terms of my like life, I had sort of been a bit bogged down. So I ended up managing a pub, which is quite a lot of work actually, and so I didn't find myself with enough spare time to continue the practice that I had been developing before when I first started doing that job um and it was really a money decision I you know I'm I I had to make money to live so I didn't find myself in a good enough position to like pay my rent but actually once I made myself homeless I didn't have to pay any rent so there was sort of nothing to lose Um, um so I did some like couch surfing for six months between London and Leeds, which because my family is still in London. Um, and I realised that when I was down in London, because I could like live with my family for a bit, I was always missing opportunities in Leeds. There was always things that were happening. And then I was like, maybe I could just pursue a freelance practice and that would be like actually doable. I, I'd never thought that that was possible for me. And because I thought that there, there was like a, because I had a, a lack of security in like my life I felt like the security that I needed was the job to be able to to survive but actually I ended up going on job seekers allowance and they being a like a kind of an educated woman really stood me in good stead for that and I realized that's a a great privilege you know I'm white and I and I can put on the voice when I need to and all of that sort of stuff so I sort of really managed to convince my uh my uh uh I can't remember what they're called my coach that I was really really like in it to win it like um and they had this scheme called the NEA which was a thing that the conservatives brought in um which I really benefited from actually even though I'm obviously very anti-Tory but um they they it was like a a kind of it was to basically wean you off job seekers so it was to give you the tools to start your own like sole trader business i.e become a freelancer um and they would sort of give you three months of full um job seekers allowance without having to go to the job center and prove that you were applying for jobs um and and give you that time to set up your business and then the next three months would be like half of that so like it's kind of like weaning you off it and then after the six months you were done so I sort of once I got I was I was I was applying for like 
project grants and things like that and then showing them to my job my work coach say like I am looking for work just in a non-traditional way to what you know I managed to convince them that that was what was going on that like that that was the, the thing and then but also doing uh, I, I started helping my pals out at lab um and really that was what I was doing with all my time just totally mm-hmm. voluntary um and what kind of things were you doing so so lab was a programming team and I was um doing a lot of like producing the producing side of that so they were sort of doing this in outside of their normal jobs Matt was a postman I think and you know they were they were they were doing their normal jobs and then doing this you know for free outside of that and I sort of looked at the bank account and looked at the like sheer disorganization of it all basically and I was like I'm gonna whip you guys into shape (laughs) and that's kind of what we did they sort of had the like zealous and the energy to to do the things at night but in the daytimes I would be like okay let's draw this together and like make this tenable and like look at what money is coming in and going out and sort of and decide that actually you could probably afford to pay yourself like some kind of subsistence out of this so that you don't have to work every single day and you and sort of it became a bit of a reciprocal relationship. And then one day someone was getting shown around lab and uh, my colleague said, this is Jess, she's one third of lab. And I, I like my head sharp turned and I was like, am I? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so that those kinds of jobs were, you know, I originally joined and I was like, I'll be your voluntary bar manager, but I ended up doing so much more in terms of organisation, organisationally kind of, forming it really and I think I know the answer to this but why why did you do that um well I couldn't afford to go and see the shows actually that's why I joined (laughs) I couldn't afford to physically pay for the tickets every time so I thought if I volunteer at least I get to see the work um and I and really the reason that I was interested in being part of it is because like I could see that what it was doing was special and there was nowhere else doing that um, and I benefited from it as well like I used to sort of make my own performance um, and they sort of programmed me at various things um, and it was always exciting and chaotic but like that's what I liked about it I think <laughs> yeah and um, so that kind of that kind of uh, moment in your life where you're you're volunteering but kind of not really and um trying to write bits what what was the hardest part of that for you like if you if you really remember it Mm. I mean I guess probably the hardest part of that for me was um not having uh the uncertainty of it I would suppose although to be honest in at that time things felt really exciting so it was a a double-edged sword because it was like the endless possibility and hope Mm. um but I think that what was what was tough about it was trying to um well I was just tired because I was doing everything all the time but but learning to write the bids was quite tough I mean when when sort of by the time we got to a point where lab was a little bit more formed and we were writing bids and we'd formed as a company and stuff um we got rejected seven times before we got a successful um, project grant 
Um, and we were doing this stuff, you know, the model was quite commercial. We sort of basically ran off the proceeds of the bar um, and ticket sales. And so we would do 70-30 splits. And I think that was tough as well because, like, it meant that we didn't really have much programming, uh, sorry, freedom in programming. So it meant that we could only afford to do to, to work with people who could afford to work with us. And that's not really an accessible model for a lot of artists. Mm. So I think in terms of that, that was quite tough. Um, but like per, that, that was like a, that was just the realities of it. And we were trying to do something off the, off the back of the people who were running it really. Um, mm. I also started at this point, as I was sort of coming off job seekers and going into freelance work, I started working as a freelance producer, which was quite, um, an interesting, like it was, it was well paired, but it was quite difficult to manage my time. Like I, uh, you know, I did end up being in a position where I think I put much more of myself into the role than I uh, maybe need, like needed to, because I loved the project and I think that there's no way that I wouldn't have been like that, I think. But um, I was, I had never had any formal producing training, so I didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> Do you mean um, with your time or with your, like emotionally or... Or both or what? I think a bit of both. So so I sort of um I ended up working with the grief series, who is I'd I'd originally as a student volunteered as a placement student. So I've worked on every bit of it and sort of Ellie kept giving me little bits of work here and there. Um and she asked me if I've would consider being a producer with her because she was going through a bit of a hard time with like having producers leave and stuff. And I was like, I am just not what you need. You need someone who is way more developed than me, knows the scene, know, you know, who is well connected. And I just, I'm not that, like, I I would be a great assistant <laughs> to you, but I wouldn't, I like, in terms of, like, leading you onwards, I don't think that's me. Uh, and so she said, okay, fair enough, and f- ended up getting some other producers in on board and then that didn't work out and then she came and then a year later or so she came back to me and was like no it's you you need to come on board and I was like okay but you know my reservations (laughs) and I still hold them um and I ended up working with her for five or so years um and it was a really great partnership well it didn't it ended up not being a partnership other people came on board as well the amazing anesthetia as you know um and so, yeah, it was, it, I think it was about m- me learning how to like pair those two and and <clears throat> how to like balance the fact that like, because lab was something that was mine, mm. I didn't form it, but I was, I, you know, it was my company with two other people. Um, and the other one, whilst I loved it, was my money job. <laughs> mm. um, so trying trying to balance that and like make sure that, everyone felt like valued and safe in that way so um i'm a 19 20 year old producer who's just got a a, as you say a money job what what is your advice for kind of balancing that or like what what really worked what 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 did you learn from that didn't work what how would you go about that now What really worked, I think, is being open to learning. So, like, actually doing more than maybe you're paid for isn't necessarily a bad thing. And I think 
that leaves you to more learning opportunities and I think being ready and willing to like take on that learning is like actually your first job for sure but I do also think there's something about like knowing your limits and having boundaries and 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 the most important thing about that is communicating them and and letting it be an open dialogue and if things shift and change as they do in life that's and that's fine just make sure that you keep communicating them because as soon as you stop talking about it that's when like problems can breed I think yeah um and And that's hard like it's hard to articulate them sometimes don't get me wrong but like it's worth doing that work and that will be outside of your work hours I would imagine (laughs) but Mm. if you put the work into knowing what it is that you sort of mutually agree is appropriate then you're going to like live a much in in a much happier way doing that job yeah and the grief series I'm I'm right in thinking that you have like daily check-ins and kind of you the communication is open right from the beginning right yeah yeah absolutely yeah so it's because of because of the emotional kind of impact that that kind of subject matter can have on you and not just you me as a producer but ellie as well as an artistic director who's just everyone in the company really and so like having that open open line of communication i found really really useful Mm. yeah so clay so um everyone can google what what clay is and, and what what happens there but for you what what is clay as a venue as a company yeah, so Clay, I we started Clay in 2019 um, and it kind of, it kind of came off the back of doing Live Art Bistro. So um, when all of the founders for Live Art Bistro had left, it was just me and my colleague Matt left and we decided that we were going to start something that was ours from the beginning um, and that was clay we decided to call it center for live art yorkshire because uh it sort of helped us professionalize a little bit i think whereas live art bistro was um very much uh 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 really important and serious like programming team like it had a real focus on like um pol- political parties whereas clay i think had a much more like uh, it, it was about creating stability for artists who work in liminality. So we were sort of way more focused on being a physical space, like a venue. Um, whereas like Lab was like, it had a venue, but it wasn't the most important part of it. Um, and with Clay, it was a, it was a decision really to um, put something in place in the city that, that, still wasn't there even when lab was which is some kind of security uh because we have um you know the playhouse and um like opera north in the city and but there was nowhere really that was like saying here is a here is a spot to talk to but not only that here is here is a space like a home for you to exist um and so sort of since then, we've been working on having a bit more security of, of space, which has varying degrees of uh, challenges <laughs> um, and, you know, success. Um, but I think it's basically a lot more kind of business headed. 
um, as and how is that? How is that for you? Because you're to say that you're competing is a wrong turn of phrase, but you are in a city that plows, you know, multi-million pounds to kind of a very few organisations, and the landscape is very uh, was dominated by yeah the Playhouse, Northern Ballet, Yorkshire Dance. It's massive organisations. So how and and it is right as well to say that clay have carved out that space that kind of alternative space mm. and a queer space and like this so yeah so you said there are some challenges so like what what are they for you um i think proving our stability is really tough because because of um we have a lot of support and a lot of love in the city that's for sure but i think in terms of people who don't know us like funders i.e trying to shore up the company to get it to a point where we are trusted with things like capital investment mm. is, is has it ha, continues to be quite a big challenge why um, yeah that's a really good question i mean we are getting better and i feel i feel a lot more equipped to do it but i think that it is just uh it is just slow growth and it's not growth that we were doing at the start if that makes sense so like learning to do the work whilst on the job was what I what I felt like my role was like feeding me like that in lab and now Clay is here like I know how to do the job and now what I need to do is learn how to do the business and that is sort of what is going on and I have amazing help like my team are amazing so so I you know we're we're small but agile and I think that there are loads of things that we do do well but I think that the instability to be honest a lot of the thing with um the difficulties of clay is about the instability of the buildings that we we occupy so we've been in the same building for the last six years now and uh, that building has a three-month break clause on the contract so it means at any point we could be asked to leave in three months which is really stressful obviously and we you know are doing work to try and make the business better so that we can find a space that we won't find ourselves in that position but in terms of finding space that's accessible to the city centre or because we are basically in the city centre some people would view us as not but we're right on the outskirts of it but it's really important for us to stay there because in terms of being accessible because people do because of the type of work that we present or or put on people travel from across the country to come and see stuff that we do so it is important, but it's also about safety for a lot of the other kinds of audiences that, that are sort of more local to us. So I'm thinking the queer audiences or the different types of queer communities, specifically young trans kids who come to, to feel safe at Clay. It's really important that we're in a really accessible place for those people. Mm. Um, so, yeah, the security of space is like a big is a big problem for us, I would say. It's our biggest like worry but at the moment where we are it, we're really happy there if we could have some kind of arrangement but the problem is is development so the place where we are is called Mudgate and it's kind of basically everything that is in and on and around Mudgate is worth more when it's flat <laughs> right um because you can develop on it and there are developers that would love to um, so landlords are not really supporting the arts economy by giving anyone secure leases. What is that like then to know that in you could be served notice and in three months you're out? What's 
what's that like in terms of programming as well like the logistics of it yeah so it means we have to you know it, it, it's work to be honest it, we, we have to write clauses into our contracts so that we can have cancellation up to three months at any point um and because you know it's not what we choose but if we have to leave then we have to leave and obviously because of the goodwill in the city and like our you know partnerships and relationships we have with places if we had a really big project coming up I think that we would not find ourselves in a position where we wouldn't be able to deliver the project it just means that we'd have to do a lot of um reshuffling but we've learned how to do that we did that through a whole pandemic that's fine um (laughs) so I think it's more like the security uh like the the kind of mental security of it that I really struggle with because if it, there's this kind of impending possibility that things will have to very quickly change. Um, it means financially we have to, we really do have to keep ourselves sure, so have a certain amount of reserves so that if things do very quickly, drastically change, we have enough money to be able to move ourselves out of the space and into potentially another space if that's even a possibility. And if not, a downside, you know, getting rid of stuff costs money. <laughs> so there's, there's that. Um, but to be honest, doing all of that shoring up work, it does, it's kind of cyclical because it does feed us well because it means that we're most, like the more, because of recognising the instability of it, but also trying to grow the company. To be able to grow the company, we have to, um, we have to make more money effectively, but, but to keep that extra kind of um, cushion uh means that we are growing the company so having the instability has also fed the growth of the company if that makes sense yeah well i think so from a business perspective (laughs) yeah yeah it is and in terms of if you went right back to the start is there anything that you would would you make the same decisions again or is there anything that you would change yeah that is a really good question I think if I went right back to the start, with the knowledge I know now, I would probably start thinking about um, understanding contracting a lot better. Because in terms of like the feel, the thing that I do know well is like how to, I've been thinking a lot about my curational practice recently because I have struggled to call that a practice until recently I sort of felt like I was an artist because because the big thing about clay basically is that we're artist centered so it means that we're led by people who have their own practice as well um and we would put like artists at the center of everything so decisions are always based made on what is best for artists as far as possible anyway um and to be able to get to a point where I can call myself a curator or feel feel like a val- feel valid to call myself a curator, I've been thinking about like what that is for me, and I think the thing that I'm really interested in is making spaces where people who don't feel like they are permitted to watch experimental performance feel welcome. So it's like because because I don't come from a back an arts background like none of my family are in the arts you know it's it's uh it was alien to me when I came across it um but I love it and I don't feel like it's not for me because it's such an emotional experience 
but I think it can be it, it has a performance art has a reputation of being quite intimidating to audiences I think and so I'm really interested in creating spaces where people feel welcome and the bits in between that are so I want to make sure that when you come through the doors at clay someone says hi how are you I don't think I've met you before what's your name or would you like a bit of food or do you know what I mean all of these different types there's different ways that you can make people feel welcome. So I realised that all the work that I've been doing mm-hmm. up until now is cultivating like that identity for Clay, um, because that's really important to me, and that's like what I want. I I want to make sure more above everything that people feel welcome in that space, and then it means that they're in a position to deal with the things that they're being faced with. Because a lot of the time they're traumatic for one reason or another. Um, so now, because I realise I've that's what I've been creating sort of in hindsight, now I realise what I'm doing now is building the business side, so the bit that's behind the scenes, and that really un- like doing my work to understand that, which can sometimes not be that creatively fulfilling. <laughs> mm. it, it makes a huge amount of difference, though. You're, you're absolutely right, I think. Work that is pushing boundaries in one way or another does have that sense of unease from a you know think of the average audience member like it does take a certain amount a certain type of person to buy a ticket for that kind of thing like a kind of risk like a kind of either a risk taker or um yeah what do you think like in terms of so so how so you've spoken about the kind of the hospitality of the space but are there other ways that that you that you invite people in like how, how i'm just interested in like to access audiences you mean like bringing people through the doors like bombs mm. on seats kind of stuff yeah no that yeah. is an interesting thing i do think there is a lot in word of mouth i would say for us particularly um because mm. you're not you're not programming safe work you're not programming you know at the end of this week we have a show that is about um the experience of a um nhs worker uh, through the medium of pro wrestling so <laughs> so there's a ring being built in a couple of days which i'm really excited about um i think yeah it's actually only work in progress it's so much work honestly i'm so like impressed and proud of the artist who's making it um yeah it's it's an interesting question. How do you get people to that? How do, how are you getting people to that that maybe are not maybe are not um, even in the art scene? Like they don't go to theatre. Well, a big thing that I've noticed. So recently, we've been we've had people who are specifically focused on marketing working with us, which has been amazing through the Kickstart scheme, um, and mm. that to be honest, having the focus time to put stuff on social media I know it's boring no one likes doing it I get it I hate doing it but it is so useful and like having the conversation as opposed to just kind of being like here's the thing buy tickets obviously that is what you're doing don't get me wrong um but also like letting people into behind the scenes I think well like you say with something like this although it's weird it's actually everyone uses the nhs in the uk so it actually isn't that inaccessible and i think especially people who are interested who are already sort of leaning towards watching something that's like politically 
very left, watching something about the sort of trials of the NHS is going to be attractive to anyone, really. Um, because we're all scared of it being just being dismantled as it slowly is. Um, so I think that there's something in really, truly understanding the politics of what the work is. I think there's something in that which is really important. Mm. And I do think that we, us being as the smaller organisation that we are, being fleet of foot, not being regularly funded at the moment, probably does help us being able to have like a really strong political voice. And I think that that's really important. So it really means that people know what it is that they're coming to. Um, and aside. And is that because you, you're not kind of being held to account in, in terms of like funders they will expect a certain Yeah, or audiences, really. More than funders, audiences. You know, if the Playhouse were to kind of really actively push a show that was like very far one way it wasn't wasn't totally centrist you know everyone who buys tickets there are sort of middle class white probably middle-aged you know that is a sweeping generalization but demographically let's assume that that's what's happening um half of those audiences are potentially not going to be happy about that so they won't buy a ticket to it like i think having quite a specific audience or like a like a like a uh I can't think of the word. You know the two circles that overlap. What's that? Yeah, oh, yeah. Like, a like there's a Venn. Yeah, exactly. There's a really, there's a really like clear kind of bit in that middle of the Venn diagram for for us anyway of like um, people who like exciting things. <laughs> so people who like to push boundaries <laughs> and people who have a really clear sense of their left politics or like identity politics for example you know uh and and so i guess that makes us sound niche um but all i'm really talking about here is the core audience there are people who mm. kind of feed off of that core audience who will come to like various different stuff and enjoy different stuff i think and because of the range of stuff that we program although we although it's not necessarily our our program there's other stuff that does happen at clay i mean that is that's the other thing we are we we do hire the space out to specific projects it would have to align with our values um but things like leeds queer film festival happens at clay as well so you know it's about making sure that like the offer for the audiences is um like catered like tailored but also wide <laughs> mm. really interesting i'm thinking um in terms of how you've built your name up in terms of the queer scene what's been what's been the the most important thing for you or could you just talk a little bit more about yeah um well I guess like such a buzzword but inclusivity (laughs) like creating creating spaces where people feel really like safe to be themselves I think that's the big thing uh fortunately or not for us a lot of queer kind of socializing does happen around like like hedonistic environments and parties are something that we are really good at so (laughs) so there's lots of opportunity for people to kind of really realize their full selves in a space like that but it isn't just 
just to parties. It isn't, it isn't. Um, you know, I think just really simple stuff like understanding pronouns and making sure that people are, you know, allowed to explore that in your space. I think there is like a kind of a, an interesting... Because we don't have, like, it's not, it isn't specifically a queer space, but it has become that because of people feeling welcome there. And so now we sort of are kind of understanding what that means and, like, what our responsibility to people is. We have things like a code of conduct, but we don't have a safer spaces policy because we're not, there are other spaces in, like, war chambers in the city that do have that. And and they're a co-op and and they have, like, a really clear political kind of message that they, they, um, you know, it's run by activists. Um, whereas, like, because we have the kind of f- a bit more freedom, I guess, because we are, like, a-, a limited company, we have the freedom to kind of, like, be a bit more breathable in some ways. So it means that, like, people who don't necessarily understand that way of life but are open to it can come here and not feel like they can't explore that or ask the questions. Um and don't get me wrong, there is no space for um, any kind of disrespect or um, prejudice in our space. Of course not. And we will call people out on that. But that's another thing. People respect that calling out because it's done it in like a compassionate and friendly way a lot of the time. Um, so I think that that is probably where a lot of it comes from. I also just think like uh, uh, the current team are all queer or non-binary women which I think is just like a really safe pair of hands basically um and so it is driven by the values of the people who are at the helm of the space and uh that's kind of something that runs through the whole of clay really like the work on the business that I talked about before is trying to get us away from this, but unfortunately, because of the fleet of foot nature and the instability of the space, it means that whatever happens, whatever is happening at the time does run off the steam of the people who are running it. So you really have to love it to do it. Um, that makes it sound like a toxic work environment. I think that we managed to toe the line quite well. <laughs> It sounds to me like it comes all authentically from the top down in terms of like you're you're not the things that you're putting into place are things that you would mm. want if you were audiences. Yeah. Which sounds like it's exactly how you should be rather than yeah, doing that trying to make yeah. that up as you go along kind Thanks. of thing. That's um, actually really nice to hear, thank you. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's like when you it's like all white boards trying to come up with kind of uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, reactions to Black Lives Matter. It's like they will, you know, there's part of the problem yeah. is yeah, yeah, you yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> um, what what advice would you have for um, someone trying to run their own business? Then what? So you you've spoken a little bit about contracting, a little bit about kind of um fundraising but what yeah I'm, I'm i'm about to start my own business it's a it's in the arts what what ask do you have for me? help <laughs> 
Because there is so much goodwill in the city. I think like being transparent and open with people is really important. I we try to do that as far as possible we possibly can without putting anyone at risk. But you know, I, I like if I don't know how to do something, I will contact a pal who or like someone else who runs something similar or not actually i'll ask people i don't know for help you know if we have ever had like a, a, a really specific problem i have emailed someone at the playhouse or emailed someone at e street arts and said this is a problem i don't know how to deal with please can you advise me who i should talk to um i also have to say I absolutely love having a board I know some people struggle with it and it's not without you know difficulty sometimes um but actually someone should be holding you to account <laughs> I think that's really important um and we kind of went for a while without having a board and then when we started clay I was like felt quite strongly that it was important to have that because it meant that it's not just having someone to hold you to account, but it's also having other people to collaborate with. And like, because they're, it's okay for an artistic director to be on the board as well, that's fine. It means that you have an equal say as every, as much as everyone else does. But but I think having other people to, who are as invested as it in, in it as you are is like invaluable. Um, and of course, if they're not on the staff team, they're never going to know the intricacies of how it works. And that's absolutely fine. And that that is where the work lies, trying to get someone who doesn't do the everyday to understand what the everyday actually looks like. That is work. Don't get me wrong. But it means that you have someone you can ring and say, or a, a number of people you can ring and say, I have this problem that I don't know how to deal with. I feel like you might have a solution. And if you don't, it's your job to help me find the solution. <laughs> So, so how does it work then? Is it a board of trustees or is it a board of, is it a voluntary thing? Like not board directors? Like how yeah, is it? So, uh, so, so they're registered directors on Companies House. So they, they are also responsible for, like for the company. Um, so they're, yeah, they're responsible absolutely. financially as yeah. well. Uh, but it is voluntary. They're not paid to do the work. It doesn't mean that there's... Mm maybe there's work that they could get paid to do if they had this particular skill, providing it wasn't a conflict of interest, but that's like a thing you have to uh, sort of decide and negotiate yourself. So, so that's a massive thing, isn't it? Going from a kind of artist-led or a founding-led thing to a board of um, directors who you, you technically yeah. own less of the company. It, it, you know, Steve Steve Jobs got fired from his board, didn't they? Who set up Apple as the kind of um, the anecdote that comes to mind. But like, how could you talk us through that decision? Because that's yeah. that's quite a brave decision to kind of relinquish some of the not control, but because you've still got artistic control of the company, right? It's in terms of if yeah, what 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 went through your mind when when doing that? Was the well. I think it basically was just, I think a lot of the decisions that we have made are, are uh, end up catching up with us in a way. So like a lot of the time we'll make a decision because we, we need to make that decision. It's sort of led, it's not, it's, it's almost not a decision. It's led us to that point. So for us with like some funding that we 
could have been able to access, we would have had to have had a board. So we decided to make a board. So to be honest, it wasn't really that right. conscious. And I would, to be honest, say a lot of stuff has been like that in my in my experience of it, which I don't think you can always, when you're a small organisation like us, you can't always so consciously make the decisions. Um, and every time I have to make a Say that again, sorry. Better, right? it's, the, it's your nimbleness and ad, your ability to be agile that allows you to make these decisions. Is yeah, yeah, I would say right? so. I would say so. But it's, but it's also actually, when it comes to it, it might feel like a big decision, but like it's also only art. <laughs> it's really important space, and I really <laughs> do believe that in that. But also, like, what's going to happen? You know, there are people who, you know, we've been reading about Rishi Sunak's wife recently sorry this probably really puts this at a point in time this podcast at a point in time but you know she has been involved in organizations that have gone bankrupt like three different organizations that have gone bankrupt owing millions and millions of pounds to the tax man like it's it's so it's it's beans comparatively you know with the kind of stuff that we're dealing with so like these decisions yeah. whilst they might sometimes feel like the world they're just not so you just need to make them to get to this next point and then maybe you will have to put some work into undoing them if you then learn that they weren't the right decisions but again that also isn't the end of the world <laughs> i'm so glad you said that <laughs> so, that's only a bit of context so how did you go about um choosing who is on your board for example for those who yeah, haven't so got i would really really board. recommend an application process um we put out a call out we had uh, interviews and we kind of recruited like it was a job um it we made it really clear that it's voluntary no one gets paid um but it means that with that clarity what you're getting is people who are invested and that is what you need <laughs> you cannot have someone who's just doing it for well, I mean, what, what what are the reasons for doing it? I don't really even know if you don't want to help the organisation better themselves. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's an ego thing. Like, yeah, do I sit on a board? Kind of I think thing? that I is a thing. But also then it just becomes a trial if you're not actually invested in it. So, mm. yeah, no, I do. And I, and I think that, like, we're lucky enough to not have people like that on the board. Um, we, we meet every quarter, so four times a year. But that is um, only the board meetings. And really, for me, board meetings are the most, like, useless part of being a board. People always think board meetings are, like, this big, important thing. That's basically us reporting on what's going on in the organisation so that they have a general knowledge. The important things for me are problem solving with individual members of the board. So I have... <clears throat> Uh, an independent producer or she, when she joined she was an independent producer actually she's now works for a company but she's a producer she's really great at fundraising which is great and so when I write a bid I send it to her she reads it over she sends it back to me you know just having you know and I could do that with other people and I do you know there are we you know we're part of we're sort of quite closely affiliated with East Street Arts they're kind of one of our partners and so there are people at East Street Arts that would read through bids for me as well but having someone who is like four us you know it because she does it outside of it really makes a difference makes it really makes a difference and like 
uh like if I have to deal with like a HR thing I have someone who has like also been an uh, artistic director of like a, a NPO on my board and so she didn't do that anymore but she does have a history of it so I can call her do you know what I mean it's just like really specific problems that I don't have to like just like wonder about or and because if it's ever confidential obviously then talking to people outside the organization is a difficult thing um so it's just like it's it's protecting your decisions and making sure that the things that you're doing and saying are logical and having someone to like help and challenge you is so useful what's the worst thing about having a board uh i would say the in the transfer of information trying to get them to understand what it is that you are doing is really difficult. Um, and then, I mean, for me, this is just a change, but for me, like financial decisions. So we've written it into our t- terms of reference that anything that we want to do that's over £5,000, we, oh, sorry, we want to spend that's over £5,000, then we have to like talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um and so or does that include like a project uh that includes like any piece of kit if that was the case yeah uh, a project um designating funds so if you wanted to create a budget for something out of some money that we had um uh pay rises you know all of that sort of stuff so like having to get approval from all the members of the board to be able to do that is does it it create that's the bit that creates more work i would say mm-hmm. um but the reason it, have they ever said no have have what have they ever said no or have yeah. we, has the board ever said no to something yeah uh yeah i think so not for not for financial stuff like that because we know that to bring it because of that clause that we have in our terms of reference we have to make a really good case so there's no way they couldn't say no really um but there have been conditions set. Say more. So, um, for example, when we recently asked for a pay rise, um, it wasn't in line with inflation, but also uh, getting into the finances, obviously. Uh, it, it, the wages also are not in line with industry standards. They're much lower. <laughs> um, right. So that was the argument I made. It was like, I hear what you're saying. They're not in line with inflation, but I'm also being way underpaid. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and we have a bit more financial stability to be able to like commit to paying people this amount of money. I think we should do it. So but yeah. then we had to commit to a pay freeze for two years. Okay, interesting. So, and that like, what what that could look like is different. Like I'm, I actually don't know in terms of the terms of that. I don't know if that works out with inflation, if it can go up with inflation or not. Which is, you know, this is what I'm saying. Like I don't hold all the information, and I can't. I actually don't really particularly know how that plays out. If it's like it stays exactly as it is, or it, it can't go up outside of the realms of inflation. So yeah. I that's something I probably need to know and understand. But that that's what I'm saying like I'm not doing it alone anymore <laughs> it's not yeah. just my job to do that <laughs> yeah that makes sense and it's important to say as well that these people are for your business right they are there to they're making all those decisions in in line with what they think is best for the business absolutely as well. 
Absolutely. And that is what is great because it means that it's not just me that really, really gives a shit anymore. And like whilst I might be making, you know, it is important because I am on the, the staffing team that like the decisions that I make might not be based on like rationality, <laughs> for example. Because mm, um, you're in the trenches. As, you know, yeah, you're, exactly. You're, it could be way more emotional than it actually needs to be. And having someone to sort of put, hold me to account to that is like really important i think how how long are the people how how long do they serve as a kind of term on the board so the minimum is one year and the maximum hmm, good question it's either four or six can't remember but that means mine, yeah. mine can yeah years yeah but that means mine can only be four or six years too and i think really that's the dream like that doesn't scare me because what I want clay to be is something that can survive without me. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the mark of a good business. Yeah. And that's why, yeah. So I was having the same kind of conversations for Riptide and kind of the, the idea is, you know, in 30 years time, you could step down as the artistic director and Riptide still has a life or, you know, clay still has a life without you. Um, and then you bring in new energy, new ideas, you know, that are maybe, I don't know, more in line with the times, I don't know. Yeah, totally, <laughs> but, yeah. I even feel like that now. Like, I used to know yeah. what was going on in terms of, like, the graduates scene a lot better than I did now because I was in age closer to it, I guess. Just I knew more of the people. And I feel, like, so out of touch. I have to really work hard to to, mm. to, to understand what's going on, like, physically go to stuff all the time. Whereas I would sort of just understand what was going on. I wouldn't have to go to everything. And obviously that's not sustainable. You can't go to everything. But <laughs> but like, yeah. you know, putting myself in positions where I'm surrounded by basically teenagers. It's not really an attractive prospect for me at my age. <laughs> <laughs> but it's important to do it. <laughs> I don't know. You can get down with kids. Oh, I, I try, I try. <laughs> um, so last question, talking of getting down with kids. Uh what is your advice for 18-year-old Jess? Oh, I, when I read this question, I was, I was struggling with it a bit, but I, I do... Where were you at 18? Were you in Leeds? No, I was, in, I was about to come to Leeds. I was sort of applying for uni. Um, I think probably the thing I would say to myself is like trust your instincts because I really was unsure um I my family I'm the second person in my extended family to go to university and I got into like I got into some better unis than the one that I went to <laughs> like you know red brick unis I, I say better with air quotes um mm -hmm. and I chose not to go to them and my family were all like that is mental what are you doing you obviously got into a better uni, you should go to the better uni. <laughs> um, and I was like, no, but listen, this course, that's where it's at. That's the interesting thing. I want to I wanna do that. Um, and I'm sorry that that's disappointing to you. <laughs> and I did it. And I was 100% right. If I had gone to a course where I had to do like drama kind of and theatre studies, I would have not have... I would not have got as good a grade as I got. You know, I left with a first and stuff, which, like, isn't the be-on-and-end-all, don't get me wrong. But, like, it, it, I think the communities that I've 
met, I wouldn't have met. I wouldn't, I would possibly still not be in Leeds. And I think that, that really the reason I'm saying trust your instincts is because that's what that led me to, is to understanding that like being in the place that is right for you, the place where you can create your own opportunities is going to be the most important thing for the development of your career. Um, and that's what I found. So, it's interesting because actually Trust Your Instincts runs the, right the way through your the story that you said at the beginning. So kind of quitting everything, choosing the uni that you did, even the kind of when you're talking about the hospitality of, of clay and the kind of, well, we're just doing it kind of instinctually. We're doing what we think is the best thing like creating the board is all it all runs through it kind of that's really interesting you said that mm, thanks yeah i hadn't actually thought of that but that is true yeah yeah well thank you so much for your time today it's been really awesome to to have a peek behind the curtain that is clay and um yeah i didn't talk about the art very much did i but i think maybe that's probably part of the reason you do this podcast because we can watch the art what we don't know is how it all works exactly that exactly that yeah Well, thank you so much. Cool. All right, thanks. Nice to see you.